Welcome to the Grow Strong Leaders podcast. I'm your host, Meredith Bell, and I interview business leaders who are committed to their own growth and the development of everyone on their team. If you enjoy my podcast, be sure to subscribe and rate it on your favorite podcast platform. Welcome to another episode of the Grow Strong Leaders podcast. I'm your host, Meredith Bell, and my show is brought to you by my company. We publish software tools and books for improving the way people communicate with each other at work. And you can find us at growstrongleaders.com. I am so excited today to bring to you my guest. This is going to be such a treat. Steve Sims, welcome to my show. Thanks for having me. Well, Steve, you are such a unique character. I can't wait to go into some of your background. I want to share with my audience, though, a little bit about you. Uh, Steve grew up in a family in England that was uh, bricklayers and uh, generations, as a matter of fact. And I'm going to be asking him to tell us how he made that transition from that role to what he does now. He has a unique talent for connecting people's passions, opening doors, and making things happen. In fact, he's been running his luxury travel and lifestyle concierge firm, Bluefish, for more than 20 years. And during that time, Steve has developed an exclusive reputation, and a very impressive client list of the world's rich and famous. And he's the author of one of my favorite books. I was just telling him my two business partners, and I have not just studied this book, we've been applying it. It's called Blue Fishing, The Art of Making Things Happen. And he's also the host of the podcast, The Art of Making Things Happen. He lives in Los Angeles with his wife, kids, dogs, and if I'm not mistaken, a whole bunch of motorcycles. (laughs) (laughs) So Steve, let's start with how did you go from being a bricklayer to creator of once in a lifetime experiences for clients? Baby steps, Um, baby steps and aggravation. Um, You know, people, you you were very kind to say that I'm, I'm unique, but I don't think so. I think as entrepreneurs, most of the stuff we do starts by being aggravated. And I remember leaving school at 15 years old um, and just thinking to myself, is this it? You know, is, is this really my life? Uh, and there was a, a very profound moment of my life that uh, I was on the building site and my dad said to me that I, I couldn't be working at bricklayer that day because they were short of laborers and I had to be one of the guys just hoisting bricks up to the scaffolding. So I climbed up a ladder one day um, and I got to the top of the scaffolding. Next to the ladder was my dad, my uncle, my two cousins, and my granddad, all on the same line. I saw not only my family tree, but I saw my future. It was literally like seeing a flash into every 5, 10, 15, 20 years. And I went down to my granddad because uh, it stopped me. My dad yelled at me to put the bricks down. And I went down to my granddad during tea break time. And I said to him, granddad, and this is a really rude question. I'm so, he's a, he was a big Irish lad, so I'm surprised I didn't get a smack in the nose. But I said to him, granddad, did you think you'd be doing this when you were this old? And he was like 70. He had no pension. You know, it always, you know, he only needed enough money to go to the pub and keep the lights on. Um, 
And he didn't have any planning or anything. So he had to work for as long as he lived kind of thing. And he just looked at me. He looked into his tea. He didn't even look at me. This is one of the most powerful things. Didn't even look at me. Didn't stir. Didn't get angry. Just blew into his cup of tea, trying to warm up on a, on a typical rainy English day. And he spoke and he said, if you don't quit today, you'll be me tomorrow. And that was it. And I thought, I've, I've got to get out. So I started a journey of just trying to find somewhere that I could find a better way of life. And of course, when you're 18, 17, 16, a better way of life just equates to having money. So when I was young, I wanted to be rich. I wanted lots of dosh, big fancy car. Didn't even like cars. I was always on a motorbike, but wanted a big fancy car, blah, blah, blah. And I went off in search to try and get it. And I tried a ton of jobs that I was all qualified to do. <coughs> and I got fired a lot. And I ended up applying for a job, funny enough, in a different country, in Hong Kong. And I got the job. Um, and I got the job, was flown out of uh, England to Hong Kong, landed in Hong Kong, and was fired after 24 hours. Um, and that was it. And just trying to find my way around a foreign country, I was just in a bar one night getting drunk, and I was asked to be the doorman. And I remember being the doorman thinking, I have gone from a noble, skilled profession, a skilled trade of a bricklayer, to literally now my job description is to punch people. You know, I'd gone down. Um, but all entrepreneurs, again, that aggravation, the aggravation had created me to leave the building site. Now that same aggravation of being a doorman made me think, well, okay, this can't be done to me. It's got to be done for me. Where's the benefit in this? It's got to be. And, and that's how entrepreneurs think. Well, you know, there's a, like COVID, there's an immense amount of millionaires that have been born through COVID. Because they've just pivoted. I know everyone hates that word, but they've gone, hey, how can I work this? How can this be better for me? You know? Um, and that's like everything. I remember Sean Stevenson, a friend of mine, he always said that um, his life had been done for him, not to him. Mm -hmm. And I, I wanted to, I, before I knew him, that was the attitude I was, I was always kind of like looking for the angle. That curious little ginger-headed Irish lad from East London was kind of like, how can I get away with this? How can this, how can I get into this door? How can I make, and that's what it was. I just started to want to associate with rich people. Now, this is going to sound very rude. Part of me doesn't care, but I didn't want to associate with poor people. Because I was poor and I knew what that was like and it sucked. So why do I want to hang around another bunch of people going, oh, woe is me. The end is nigh. I can't afford another beer. So I wanted to hang around with people that didn't have those as obstacles. So I tried to find a way of getting in front of rich people. And the funny thing was, as the doorman, I knew where all the nightclubs were and I knew all the doorman. So it started off just simply getting you into a club, getting you into a bar, getting you into a premiere, getting you into a private party. And before you knew it, I ended up working with everyone from Sorrell and John's Oscar party to the Grammys and the, and the Kentucky Derby. So I ended up working for the largest events. I won't say it was a scam. No, because that's the wrong word. It was a Trojan horse. You know, I was definitely wor working with uh, ulterior motives. I was getting powerful people into events and getting them experiences, you know, with the Vatican and Andrea Bocelli and all these other kind of things. 
But I was doing it just so I could have a conversation to ask them, why were they successful? Why were they rich? Why were they wealthy? And so many of us, including me at the time, were not. I wonder now if podcasts had been around in the in the 90s, whether I would have launched the world's leading concierge firm. I would have just taken a shortcut and just start a podcast and just interview them because that's what we're doing nowadays. But that's what it was. It was literally just a, a rouge to get me to communicate with rich and powerful people by satisfying their needs, which nine times out of 10 was just to give them a cool cocktail story. Mm-hmm. It's so fascinating to hear you describe that because I know another piece of that with you is really building relationships. That to me is a core piece of what goes throughout your book. This whole idea of finding people you like to work with and then also building strong relationships with them. So talk a little bit about why that has been so critical to your success. So I knew I knew starting out, I had, or I didn't have a lot of things. And so I didn't have a pretty website. I didn't have a pretty look. I didn't sound like Hugh Grant. I didn't wear clothes like Brad Pitt. I I wasn't articulate. I wasn't profound. uh, I wasn't philosophical. So I had had all of these kind of um, uh, things that were against me that I couldn't portray to who you thought should be working with the richest and most powerful people in the world. But I noticed something. If I was a solution to your problem, you didn't care about any of those other things. Excuse me. (coughs) So like, I'll give you an example. Of course, swallowed something there. Um, Two o'clock in the morning, you've got a headache and you go to the kitchen cabinet and you pull out a pack of headache tablets When was the last time you looked at the packet and went, no, I don't like that logo. I'm going to try and find another pack. No one cares, do they? You know, you pull them out and you go, as long as this serves a purpose, I don't care. Um, It's like toilet roll. Toilet roll has no pretty labeling on it. It's just plastic so you can get to the toilet roll. It serves a function. And when things solve a problem and serve a function, you don't care about the prettiness around it. Now, being 240 pound of, you know, British biker, I wasn't pretty. So I had to serve a function. And to serve a function, I had to create a solution to your problem and then establish a relationship with you because I couldn't bribe you with loyalty points. I couldn't bribe you with a beautiful website. But if I could create a relationship with you, I had you. Okay, and so by creating a relationship, and this is where you get selfish. I've often said, let me ask you, Meredith, are you selfish? Yes. I I mean, it's a combination of things. I like to serve others, but I like to take care of myself, too. Isn't it funny how we look at selfish as a bad thing, as as a negative? You know, our parents always said, oh, Stevie, you know, don't don't be selfish. Share your sweets, share your marbles, you know, share your games. And and you grow up thinking, oh, my God, selfish is a bad thing. I don't want to be called selfish. It's nasty. But when was the last time you were on a plane and the steward stood up and said, hey, in the case of an emergency and the oxygen mask drops down from above your head, Give it to someone else first. Make sure they're all right before you look after yourself. It's never happened, has it? You have to look after yourself. 
So I always maintained that for me to have a relationship, it had to benefit me. What am I getting out of this relationship? What am I getting out of this podcast? Everything I do, I live selfishly. What's in it for me? Hey, this could be to make me smile. It could be to invigorate, to inspire, to spread my word. You know, that's all what's in it for me. Once you've got that established, okay, what's in it for them? Because if it's only one way, it's called a transaction, okay? Every relationship I have is a win-win. I have relationships with people a lot wealthier than me. I have relationships with people a lot poorer than me. But they all bring something to the party. And so whenever I'm looking at a relationship, I'm like, okay, how can I help you? You know, how can I benefit you? Do I know someone that can help you? Do I know someone that can benefit you? Can I challenge you? Can I inspire you? And if you bring that, then you bring a connection. And every relationship is a win-win proposal. When it's not, it's an Amazon transaction. Such a good point. And I think about the different stories that you've told in your book too, where you're always looking at how can I bring something that will be of interest to this other person before I ask for something when you're trying to make arrangements for a client. And I think that's such a critical uh, component. Maybe you could just tell us, because I want my audience to get a sense of the size of the projects that or experiences you create for your clients, because they often come to you with what you consider to be a pretty modest request and then you blow it up into something they couldn't have even imagined. So give the short version of the experience with uh, Michelangelo's David. Sure. I had a client contact me and he said, I want to do a, an amazing dining experience in Florence. He was with his fiance and his future mother and father-in-law, and he wanted to look uh, connected and powerful. So it was the word experience that caught me. Uh, he didn't ask for a great dinner. He looked for he asked for a great dining experience. So you start looking at things like you know cooking courses and getting a famous chef to you know have you you know help with the meal that kind of stuff. But what I did was I decided to add a little bit of a flair with it. Um, I took over the Academia de Galleria, which is the museum in Florence that houses Michelangelo's David. Shut the entire museum down from I think four o'clock in the afternoon till two o'clock in the morning set up a table of six at the feet of Michelangelo's David. When the clients came in, there was a string quartet, red carpet, loads of rosebuds all over the floor. And as they were eating their pasta, looking over this phenomenal um, uh, um, view of Michelangelo's David, I told them that I had a local entertainer would like to come in and sing for them during their dinner. Is that okay? And they looked at me, you know, blankly and mildly unimpressed. And they were like, yeah, that'd be great. And I brought in Andrea Bocelli to serenade him during their pasta. And they weren't, they were no longer unimpressed. Um, but that's the kind of things that, that I do. I basically take a, a, a person's um, concept and what they say and then try to discover what they need, what they're really trying to do. Um, and I go for that. So listen to what they say, but hear what they need. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite stories in your book, I really want you to talk about because it, it demonstrates what you were just saying, this idea of listening carefully. Uh, and, and this has such importance for all of my listeners because all of them are in situations where if they listen 
the way you did in this situation, the outcome, their, I should say their response and the potential outcome could be really different. This is the fellow that actually one of the people on your team was talking to, and then they handed him off to you. He, he called saying he wanted to get tickets to the Playboy Mansion, uh, but you detected that wasn't, talk about what you heard in his voice that, <laughs> that, you know, helped you realize this was not what he really wanted. I just so love that story. In a world of political correctness, I'm sure a lot of people could get bent out of shape about it, but um I had this, uh, you're, you're correct. One of the team took the call and this guy phoned up <clears throat> New York stockbroker. So very brash and direct and I need this and that's what I want. And uh, said that he wanted two tickets to Hugh Hefner's Playboy Mansion party. You know, this was obviously way back in the day when they existed. Um, and you know, these were 15 grand a pop tickets for some of the, some of the bigger events. And so, um, but she didn't get a level of excitement out of it. You know, it wasn't like he was excited. He just wanted to buy the tickets. So she put it through to me and she said, look, can you have a word with this guy? There's something off about his voice. And I would of, often communicate with my team on, on how to detect hesitation, resistance, purpose, you know, the reason behind all those kind of things. And I suppose the doorman in me realized from a very early age, protect your front door. Now, if I let someone into a VIP event that I had access to and they acted like a moron, I would no longer have access to that. So I was always very careful about who I would actually allow to get in. Making a payment was not good enough for me for you to get into the stuff I had access to. You had to be the right fit. So this uh, uh, this team member of mine says, hey, you know, will, will you chat with him? So I get on the phone. I said, hey, how you doing? And he's like, yeah, yeah, I, I need two tickets to the Playboy party. Oh, which party is that? Oh, it's this party. I need two tickets to it. Great. Let me get a pen and paper. Now, of course, you're at a desk. So I'm leaning on a pen and paper. I was just stalling. So I went, oh, while I get this. So, um, you know, how are you doing? Where are you from? Uh, I'm fine. And I'm in New York. You know, he didn't want to chat. I went, well, let me just get a pen and paper. Okay. Have you been in the Playboy Mansion before? No, I haven't. So uh, why do you want to go? Uh, I, I, I want just, I want two tickets to the Playboy Mansion party. All right, okay. Fine. Oh, I've got a pen now. Hang on. So then I waited a so second. Oh, bloody pen's broke. Hang on a minute. Let me get another pen. So did you get over to this side much? And I'm just, I'm delving in. You know, we joke about calling it Arena Sherlock. I am trying to pull the layers back just to find out because he's abrupt. He's off. There's no passion. He's about to drop $30,000 just on tickets. No flights, no hotels included, just tickets. And you ain't excited? Something's wrong here. Look, I don't care if you want to go to the Playboy Mansion party. I don't care if you want to go to the Disney studios. You want to be excited about the money you're spending. So something was off there. So I said to him, I said, you get over to the West Coast. Uh, yes, I, yes, I do. Yeah, I do. Okay, wherever she go? Did you get over to LA, San Diego? No, 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 no. I, I go up north. Notice the detection in the change of tone. You know, now he's, oh, I go up north. There's, there's a slight bit of javelity there, you know? So I went, oh, okay, whereabouts, San Francisco? Oh, no, no, I, I get out into that. Now he's calming up. 
now he's kind of having a bit. Oh, you get out of uh, San Francisco. Yeah, I get out into Napa. I love the wines over there. Such a beautiful. Now he's happy. Now he's telling me about the hills of Sonoma and Napa and how wonderful it is. I said, you know, I can't. I like whiskey, but I can't get this wine thing. You know, why do people like all oh, the tones and the spirits? And I get over there with my partner and we do this and we do. God is giggling like crazy now. He lo- I went, oh, hang on a minute. I've got a pen working. What are the names I need to take down for the Playboy Mansion? Uh, literally did that. Uh, and this name and this name. Okay, let me write that down. Okay. Hey, sorry, I don't want to digress, but take me back to the wine country. Oh, it's it. And bang, he's up again. So he's up when he's talking about Sonoma and Napa and the wine. He mentioned partner, not wife, partner. And then he talks about the Playboy Mansion party. Clearly had no excitement about that. Give him a glass of wine. Goes like a giggly little girl at a Justin Bieber concert. Playboy Mansion party. Didn't care. So I said to him, I said, you know, you get over to Napa. I get over there a lot. Whenever, whenever my partner's available, we just go again, reconfirmed partner. All right, fine. So then he went on. I went, hang on a minute. Hang on a minute. I said, you'll work at a moment. Yeah. See, you've probably got a lot of people around you and you can't talk to openly. No, 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 I can't. Okay, fine. I'm going to talk. You can either hang up or let me know I'm in the right direction. Okay. Are you gay? And he came back and was like, why? I said, no, no, no. I've heard you mention the word partner a few times. You're very excited about going to the Playboy Mansion, uh, to the uh, um, Sonoma and the wine country. You clearly do not give a damn about the Playboy Mansion. I suspect, and you can hang out whenever you like, I suspect you're in a really pushy environment and you're trying to do this to satisfy somebody else. Because I'm getting the idea you don't want to go. Do you want to go? No. So let's do this. I'll help you. You're going to fly over here on these dates because this is when the play is like, yeah, okay. This is when the Playboy Mansion party is. You're going to land in LAX. You, my friend, are going to bugger off to the Napa Valley, and we're going to organize three nights for you to be up there. We'll get some vineyards to be open. I've got a couple of clients going to the Playboy Mansion. I'm going to get the ticket stubs from that. And when you come back through town, I'm going to give you the ticket stubs. You go back to New York. You drop them on your desk. No one's the wiser, and you haven't put up with a party you don't want to go to. Would that be of interest? He was like, please make that happen. That was it. So, um, and the funny thing is, I ended up getting an article in uh, Genre and Out magazine, two of the leading LGBTQ. Uh, oh, God, I'm sorry. I've got me all my anagrams wrong. Um, but two of the major uh, alternate lifestyle magazines wrote articles on me because these two were very well connected in the industry uh, and in the, in, the, in the network and actually told these people about me and they wrote two articles on the company. Such a fabulous story. 
And of course, you not only made him happy, you know, for me, the extraction from there is you did not take at face value what he said initially that he wanted. You picked up on the, the, the tone of voice, the lack of enthusiasm and noticed when that changed. And I think, Steve, that is such a fabulous example because too often we're moving so fast, we don't take time to slow down and do that. Uh, you're, you're totally right. And, and the downside is it's getting worse. Um, we're in a transactional society. I heard a report the other day which um, scared the bejeebas out of me. It said that the average teenager spends longer talking to AI per month than their best mate. Mm. And I thought to myself, that can't be right. You know, now my son, I'll say to my son, hey, you know, tomorrow, make sure you pull the bins out and you put them out in the front yard. And he go, OK. And he'll pick up this thing, this phone. And he go, Siri, remind me to put the bins out tomorrow. Siri, remind me. Alexa, do this. Siri, do that. And he's barking orders at transaction. You can even order Amazon stuff now through this, you know, the connection. And it turns out that when you add up, accumulate all those couple of seconds, it came out to in this report like an hour and three minutes per month that you spend barking orders at um, AI and you averagely only spend an hour talking to your best mate on the phone. So that's how they came up with the average teenager spends more time in, in an accumulation per month speaking to AI than their best mate. I thought that was terrible. We're also in a world now of transaction, you know, not loyalty, transaction. And loyalty is funny. You know, you go to Bloomingdale's or Neiman Marcus or your local supermarket, and there's a loyalty program, isn't there? Mm-hmm. And when you buy something, you get these loyalty rewards. Well, that's bribery. Because let's be blunt, if the grocery store, the, the, the marketplace next door was five cents cheaper for the same toilet roll, where are you going? You're going next door. Your loyalty is based on price because you have no relationship. Amazon is incredibly convenient to us. You know, we want a screwdriver. We want some light bulbs. We want some toilet roll. <laughs> Following day, it's there. But do you think you have a relationship with Amazon? No. One of the most successful companies in the planet is there to action on your request. I want toilet roll. There you go. You think you have a relationship with Amazon because you spend so money with it, so much money with them? You phone them up today and go, hey, I'm thinking of changing my washing liquid. Which one would you suggest? You ain't going to be able to have that conversation because there's no phone number to have that conversation. So we are being trained Uber Eats. Uber, all of these things are transactional services. The one thing you've got to do today, the one thing is everything that Amazon does and everything it doesn't. And what it doesn't do is challenge the request. It doesn't challenge the inquiry. It doesn't ask the most confrontational word word in the world. And it's my favorite word, and it's very, very offensive. And Meredith, I apologize, but I'm going to use this word here. The word is why. And it scares people. Mm-hmm. I will get people text me, DM me, and they go, Sims, I, I know you in Los Angeles. I land on Tuesday. Let's get together for a whiskey. And I will respond with why. And I'll get people going, well, I heard you were cool. You're obviously arrogant. You're obviously up yourself. You know, I thought you'd be all right. 
and they just go off on it and I just leave them alone. And then I get other people going, that's a great question. I'm working on this project and I'd like to see how you can be involved. Great. Thank you for the information. Two o'clock. Good. So I, I always do. Why? The same with everything that we're talking about now. You know, I want to go here. Oh, you want to go on that? Pl- that's fine. Why? I ask why a lot. Amazon will never ask you why. Mm-hmm. You know, Siri will never go. Why? Why tomorrow? But us, if we want to create a a uh, relationship, and if we want to create loyalty, because let's be honest, you haven't got a loyalty program between any of your friends, have you? But no. when you phone them up to meet for a coffee, they come and and if the guy on the next table says, "Hey, come and have a coffee with me," I'll buy a coffee for you. They're not going. Why? Because they have the relationship with you. Now, the worse the planet is getting in building up relationships the more you need to focus on it. It boggles me senseless. Absolutely just, I can't fathom why I'm talking to you. I cannot believe that we make such a big deal of someone like me creating relationships, listening to people, doing what they want rather than what they say, actually giving a damn Why is that so much of a unicorn today? Why am I so unique? I should be the damn norm, but I'm not. And I'm standing out by doing normal stuff. I haven't invented space travel. I haven't found a cure for cancer. I just connect with people. Mm -hmm. And I focus on making sure that the relationship is as selfishly beneficial for you as it is for me, creating a win-win, creating a relationship and establishing loyalty. That's true. I want to go back to your why, because you talked about asking why three different times, not just once. Yeah. So explain why (laughs) why you ask it multiple times. Today, we're in a society where people like to be laughed at. Okay, actually, sorry, let me rephrase that. They don't like to be laughed at, but we like to laugh at other people. How many programs do you see on TV where the whole program is based on people falling over, walking into walls, you know, on the phone, walking into fountains? You know, we we love to laugh at other people making mistakes. We also now are in a gotcha society. Oh, my God, you wore that at a fancy dress party in 1983? How politically incorrect of you. You know, you should be banned from life itself. We're in a gotcha society. So we're terrified to actually reveal what it is we really want. We'd rather rather give you the surface level of that request. And so people will come to me and they'll be like, oh, uh, I'd like to do this. What they want to do is something greatly different, but they don't want me laughing at that dream. They don't want me going, you want to do what? (laughs) That's silly. So people come up to me and they go, hey, I'd like to do this. And I say, oh, that's fantastic. I, I like the idea of it. Why? And I shut up. And it catches, uh, well, um, I've always wanted to X, Y, Z, you know, and you go, oh, that, that's brilliant. So why you? In fact, if you'll give me permission, I'll tell you a story about Elton John asking why three times. Do I have that? Please. Yes. So again, we had, I was working with Elton John for, I think it was like about eight years. 
And I looked after some of the guest lists that we could get people into the event. And I had this guy contact the, uh, the Palm Beach office. Again, a New Yorker. Sorry, New Yorker. Love you. But uh, I had another brash New Yorker come in. And one of the team put him through to me because I was, you know, I was the, the key holder for that list. And so uh, they said, you know, there's something funny about this guy. So this guy came on the phone. He's like, hey, how you doing? I believe you can get me into Elton John's Oscar party. Yeah, I can. He said, I need two tickets. Oh, that's fantastic. Um, why? He said, what? Why do you want to go? Oh, uh, it's a star-studded party. Elton John's going to be there. Uh, he's going to die soon, and I want to get a photograph. Okay. Um, anything else? Nope. That's it. Can you sell me two tickets? So his reason was that Elton was going to die. I was wondering if he knew something that I didn't know. So I'm like, oh, let me see what I can do, and I'll get back to you. And I did not take his phone number. I didn't even have any way of contacting him. I just knew that he was not the person I was going to allow to use my name to get into that event. So then we get another phone call, and this is now getting about a month away from the event. The first phone call was like three months. This one's a month. It was another brash New Yorker. I'm sure there's people in New York that are not, but, you know, it was another brash New Yorker. And this guy comes on the, the phone to one of my team, and my team contacted me, and they went, hey, we got this guy from New York on the phone. I don't think it's the same guy, but I'm wondering if it's a mate of his because you haven't got back to him that's trying to get in a different route. And I went, oh, I'll put him through. So this guy gets on the phone. He's like, hey, how you doing? I, I believe you can get me into the old John. Yeah, I can. Great. Yeah, I need I need two tickets. Oh, that sounds fantastic. That's great. Why? Uh, well, I, I hear it's a great party and um, Elton's going to be there. And um, yeah, well, th th there's a couple of things. So the first half of the explanation was pretty much exact to the other one, apart from Elton dying. But it was the way he dropped off and he said, there's things. So this is where, as Chris Voss says, you drop to your midnight DJ voice. And you go, what things? And shut up the power of silence. And the guy goes quiet. And then he comes back to me and he went, when I was a kid, my dad used to take me to school. Every day, he used to take me to school, he used to bring me home from school. It was our thing. Never my mum. She'd always be waiting for us at the door, wave me off, wave me home. But my dad would take me to school, take me home from school. And he had a cassette that was jammed in the cassette player of the car. And it was Elton John's greatest hits. And we used to sing all of the Elton John hits to school. And then on the way back from school, sing them again to school, about blaring our tonsils out to Elton John's greatest hits. And then my dad got a new car and he thought it'd be really funny because this one had a CD player in it. So he bought Elton John's greatest hits. And again, we would sing all the way to school and, all the, and even up to high school where I did not want the attention. He would have Elton John blaring and I would get out of that door and slam that door so fast. So people wouldn't hear it. And he'd be sitting, I could see his head bobbing and he'd be singing away. And then he'd pick me up and I'd jump into the car quickly. And I'd have my face pinned up against the glass out of embarrassment for my dad singing his lungs out to Elton John. And I'd get home and I'd be like, mom, can you make him stop? And then eventually I got a car 
And I didn't have to put up with my dad singing Elton John anymore when I went to school. Greatest days of my life. He said, now I got kids and I'm married. My dad passed away about seven, eight years ago. He said, and I'll be driving to work. I'll be driving out on a date with my wife. I'll be taking the kids to school. Radio will be on and Elton John will come on. And for three minutes, my dad's alive in the car seat next to me, singing his lungs out. Random three three minutes around the week, my dad's brought back to me, thanks to Elton John. I want to meet Elton John and thank him to bring my dad back every now and then. Mm. I had my wife. We arranged for him to meet Elton John and he lent in and he told him the story and everyone teared up. The bottom line is he had a why. He had a reason. And I would never have found that if I'd have just sold him two tickets. If I'd have sold him two, two tickets, I'd have been doing him a disservice because I wouldn't have known the reason behind. I wouldn't have known of what needed to happen. He'd have been bumbling around a party trying to find out when I go, hey, I've got a story for you, and it wouldn't have got anywhere. Mm-hmm. So I dared to challenge the request. I asked why, and I had to ask three times to drill down to the core of what the reason was. But if he'd have phoned me up and gone, hey, I want two tickets to Elton John's party because he brings my dad alive to me, it wouldn't have come across well. And he would never have told me that because he would have been fearful of me laughing at him. Mm. Mm. Wow. So, so profound. So many takeaways from that story, Steve. I love the way you tell it too. Masterful. <laughs> Just masterful. And, you know, this ties in with um, something else I want to ask you before I let you go, which is around what is it that holds people back from asking? You know, you've, you've done so many presentations to groups and you have a coaching program. You interact with folks all the time who are hesitant to take that leap, to try that thing. What are the things that hold them back and what do you do to help them get rid of those so they don't have those imaginary doors? Well, thanks to the book coming out nearly four years ago, I've been teaching and coaching and training people on how to increase their branding, marketing, persona, and to really go after what they want. And I found that the most reasons why um, they dare to ask is, Two reasons. One, fear of being laughed at and fear of the word no. And this is hysterical. And what I do is I first of all challenge you to get you uncomfortable. And then I train you to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. I take people to jail. I said there was a funny little exercise I did a while ago, and you can all try it. Try and strike up a conversation with someone in a coffee shop. If you want to get looked at like you're some kind of you know, a mugger or or bank robber, walk up to someone in a coffee shop and try and start a conversation. People are very resistant and hesitant to it now, okay? So this is one of the practices I do when I I train. I actually take people out of the office, down to the local coffee shop, and they are ordered to start and initiate a conversation. If you don't want to get a no, if you're scared of getting a no, then don't ask a question that they can answer with a no. Don't go, hey, like, if I say to you, hey, Meredith, can I have your car tomorrow night? You know, you could say to me, oh, no, you can't, Steve, you know. And then you may go, oh, because I need it. Or whatever. But you can say no to that, that question. But if I said to you, hey, Meredith, I'm in town tomorrow. I know you've got a car. 
Uh, what needs to happen? How, how can I possibly get you to lend it to me? Now I'm reframing the question. You can't say no because it makes you sound a little bit, you know? So you've got to think now, oh, um, I may be using it. Oh, you're using it? for What time aren't you using it? Because then I could just use it for that time. You know, so it's if you're frightened of getting a no, then ask a better question. But most people are scared of asking for what they want for fear of rejection. Mm-hmm. The reason I did so well with affluent people was because the more powerful they got, the more fearful they were of getting rejected for the simplest of requests. I remember I had a very, very famous actor want me to get into a party. And I contacted the party and I, I got him into the party. Again, never announced his name, never said who it was. And two things happened. The promoter, when they found out who it was, because they were already in the party, said to me, why didn't you tell us? And I said, because two things. One, if I'd have told you, you'd have used it for marketing purposes. Or two, you'd have tried to get a favor out of the person by getting them in. You would have used that person being in your party for your benefit rather than just letting someone come and enjoy the party. And when I spoke to the actor, the actor turned around and said, if, if we had asked to get into that party, either we'd have turned up and then there'd been a horde of photographers there, again, marketing for our event, or two, they would have rejected us and probably even used that for marketing. That we're so cool. We even rejected XYZ. We paid to outsource the potential of that rejection. If you got rejected, it wouldn't affect us. Mm-hmm. And so too many people today are fine of getting laughed at or fine of getting rejected. So they don't try. And you'll always get a no to the question you don't ask. Mm-hmm. Well, that whole term of rejection, that is because you talk in your book also about this thing of perception you know, changing our perception. So changing the perception around that word rejection to be something else. You, in in fact, one of my favorites was when you took the word failure and you said, let's think about it as discover. Mm. So talk a little bit about the difference between those and why that's important, why the words we use matter so much. Well, the matters frame how we actually accept the information given to us. If something goes wrong and we assume that it's a failure, then it's death. You know, failure is a finite. It's done. It can't be revived. It's no longer breathing. It's over. But if we look at that, if we look at that mistake, instead of looking at it as a failure and we go, okay, there's education here. There's growth here. There's discovery here. How can I make, back to Sean Stevenson, how can I make this thing going wrong a benefit to me? And when you start doing that, you suddenly realize you've never failed in your life. You've just become heavily educated on things that don't work. And and that's what's happened. I tried so many jobs. I wasn't bad at those jobs. It was just discovered that this wasn't where my unicorn needed to lie. You know, I, I was better off over here. I haven't failed at anything. I've just got an MBA and a doctorate in a lot of things. (laughs) And I love that attitude and that approach. I could talk to you for a long time, Steve. I know that um, you need to go. uh, Thank you so much 
for who you are in the world, the, the way you show up. I love your energy. I love your perspective. And I loved the stories you shared with my audience today. Thank you so much for who you are. Oh, thanks for having me on today. It's been, ple- it's been a pleasure. Thanks for tuning into my podcast. Now head over to growstrongleaders.com and check out our two books, Connect With Your Team and Peer Coaching Made Simple. While you're there, download the free facilitator guide to find out how to implement our unique peer coaching system. Until next time, I'm Meredith Bell.